Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the cave tonight are Flick Ford. Hello. And Emma Westwood. Hello. I'm really pleased someone else turned up tonight. <laughs> Would have been awkward. <laughs> nice to see you, Flick. Oh, it's good to see you too. Cave's not quite as cavernous as it was last week. <laughs> On tonight's show, we'll head back to Derry to finally vanquish everybody's favourite drain-dwelling killer clown in Andy Muschietti's It Chapter 2. We'll find Numi Rapace and Luke Evans in the suburban surrounds of St Kilda and Elwood for some reason, with Kim Ferrant's second feature, Angel of Mine. And for our retro title, we'll boldly go with writer Gene Roddenberry to where he'd never gone before or ever again with Rock Hudson, Angie Dickinson and Telly Savalas in Roger Vadim's satirical 1971 murder mystery, Pretty Maids. Before we kick off, just a friendly reminder that if you didn't get to subscribe to Triple R during Radiothon, if you lodge a subscription by the end of the Triple R Radiothon pay-up period, which which ends at 5pm on Wednesday, the 25th of September you'll still be eligible for an array of major prizes. So if you've not subscribed yet, you've still got 16 days, minus two hours, uh, 16 days to uh, subscribe to the station, and you'll still be in the running for all sorts of major prizes. You could, There's passes to Meredith Music Festival and Golden Plains. There's, uh, there's a pro PA system with a rechargeable battery. There's a Mount Avoca winery stay. There's Cinema Nova Gold Pass. Cinema Nova mm. Gold Pass, very mm. applicable to listeners of this show. There's Films for a year with a double pass. That sounds pretty good. You also get a double pass, which is pretty good, so straight across. Kind of across the road. Yeah. <laughs> Stay with Carlton. Yeah. <laughs> That's freebie. If you don't want to leave Easy. Carlton. And there's a one year, uh, speak of not leaving Carlton, a one year super pass to Museums Victoria and IMAX Melbourne. And also uh, as a subscriber, just in general, um, not, you know, whether you subscribe during the pay up period or not, you'll be eligible for things like giveaways, uh, one of which we will have later in the show. So only two years have passed since Andy Muschietti's big screen adaptation of Stephen King's classic 1984 It stunned the world by becoming the highest grossing horror movie of all time. Even adjusted for inflation, it's still fourth of all time behind only Jaws' Exorcist Sense. Wow. Yeah. So paranormal activity and Blair Witch and that. Not even. They're they're big profit margin film. Yes. Um, This is just pure box office. Okay. This is like $700 million worldwide. Um, It was a phenomenon. But in the world of the film, 27 years have passed since we last saw the club, Bill, Beverly, Ben, Richie, Eddie, Mike and Stanley facing down the evil fear-feeding demon known as Pennywise the Clown, otherwise only in 1989. It's now 2016, and it has it has returned to Derry, killing children, and in an opening credit sequence, Xavier Dolan. Uh, I'm so upset at that. <laughs> yeah, it, it was very saddening. Um, so our seven youngsters, now all in their early 40s, and played by James McAvoy, Jessica Chastain, former Neighbours heartthrob Jay Ryan, Bill Hader, The Wire's James Ransone, former Old Spice guy Isaiah Mustafa, and TV's Swamp Thing star Andy Bean, are all called back to Derry to face off again. Now, six of them who moved away have suppressed everything that happened to them in 89, and only Mike who remained in Derry like a one-man night spot, remembers everything. As their memories return, the seven bond relive old traumas and fight to control their own fears, the very weapon that makes it slash Pennywise powerful. Seed, Emma, <laughs> did returning to Derry make one note? <laughs> we all float down here. 
<laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Golly gosh! Um, the first. Well, let's start with uh, the the chapter one. Just a re- little recap. I liked cha- chapter one. I quite enjoyed it. I must admit. Um, and uh, I'm not a massive Steve King fan myself. Although Steve King, <laughs> Steve. I go back. Yeah, we go back. Oh, Stephen mate. King. Oh, okay, Steve. sorry. <laughs> Whoops, Stevie. <laughs> Stevie boy, <laughs> little Stevie King, <laughs> who appears in this film, doesn't he? He does. There's a few little cameos actually to keep people happy. Peter Bogdanovich. What the hell? <laughs> That's is that? just the tip of the iceberg of random shit. It was that very. In this movie. It was very strange. Um, but uh, yes. This this film, I, I look. I went into open minded. Although I did look at the the running time of three hours and think, oh no, mm. how is this going to play out over that amount of time? And I think that there was a level of preciousness that came into it that dragged it out over that time frame, especially towards the end, which was trying to cement, I think, Stephen King values of the you know the the friendship group and the idea of this uh, childhood friendship group and um, how it. Plays out in adult all that sort of. Ultimately, though, uh, I think that the the horror for me, I think it was trying to um, speak to horror fans a lot with its little references. There was a really strong reference; <laughs> it was more than a reference, an homage to the thing in there, which um, it even had the line "You've got to be fucking kidding, no!" With the the with the, after the legs coming out, out of a head, a head, mm. and you know, a direct homage. So I think it was trying to throw these little bites out there that you know would make horror fans go oh, "Yes!" and you know, really get excited. But ultimately, the horror seemed really, really controlled to me um I, I enjoyed there's one uh, one part that I guess was near the start I can't really remember in terms of this very long rolling narrative where um uh the Beverly character goes back to her house I enjoyed the old the old woman in her mm. her own home but otherwise the horror seemed to play out in a whole series of um oh, we're waiting for the the mouth to open and the scary mouth to come and grab us, sort of. Mm. And it kept on doing that over and over and over again to the point that I caught myself almost falling asleep during one of the scenes that I had to shift position in nice, comfy, gold-class chairs that they gave us at Roadshow's media screening uh, to wake myself up. And... And I kind of thought, why is why am I not engaging? Apart from that, apart from visually and the the the, the actual depiction of the horror, why aren't I engaging with this fully? And one of the reasons that I found was that um, the uh, it could kill them at any. Sa- we know that it had the ability, or Pennywise, or whatever you want to call it, uh, had the ability to kill them at any time. It was never the stakes were never there that they could actually get away. It was just that Pennywise had chose to allow them to survive that they got through it. Whereas there was some recall, like there was, you know, there's, you could see the, the, there were little references to Nightmare on Elm Street, things like that. And the, in fact, they even show Nightmare on Elm Street 5 on the, the billboard at the end of the film. But the thing is in Nightmare on Elm Street that Nancy gets away because she's woken up or there's always ways of getting out. But I found I just, I just, tuned out of this because I thought, well, Pennywise is just playing and Pennywise can do whatever Pennywise wants. 
You know what I mean? Mm. I I was also not that, that scared by this, and yeah. I get scared very easily. And you easily. get scared, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I I brought a friend with me, <laughs> um, who very kindly offered to come see this three hour, uh, which did actually feel like twenty seven years uh, running time. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought that was one level of uh, accuracy in the film. But um, yeah, I was expecting to be scared because I saw the first one um, and did have like did get quite into the jump scares in that first one. This one, I think that they went. I heard a comment made that it goes a bit like Avengers Endgame at the end, and I was like, "Yes, that is exactly." I actually haven't seen that film, but I was like, "I get the sentiment," and I feel like that's where it goes wrong with scaries. That when in the first chapter, when they focused in on the everyday and like the very fact that Pennywise resides in a drain is so everyday, like and especially for kids, like the idea of cycling around and seeing that everywhere. And that being a side of horror is precisely what makes it scary. Mm. And in this one, it's like they forget that really crucial element of horror. And <clears throat> instead you have this, um, I don't know, really like odd, uh, the delu- I suppose they're kind of like delusions, but also they take, they spend a lot of the time underneath this world and it's kind of a bit, mm. I wasn't really that into And I think those, the thing that is, I'm not a massive horror fan, but I think one of the best things about the genre is the way in which to tap in it, quite everyday horror. Like mm. the domestic violence, racism. The film actually starts with a gay hate crime. And those moments were so powerful. And I think that having Pennywise or whatever the horrible creature at the centre of these films act as this sort of stand-in for these everyday horrors is yeah. a wonderful setup. And I think that the books do go into that a lot more. But this film just doesn't. It's mm. like it, it doesn't draw upon enough of the source text in the right way. And then when it does divert from it, um, for instance, in the character of Mike Hanlon, who's the only person of colour in there, he's he's kind of just this nothing character. He's kind of offered as this, like, mystical guide, which is super problematic. I know. The I, night's I, watch. I know, the night's watch. Went, We're going to have a bell. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah. yeah. But it, it's kind of a bit of a, yeah. I know, mm. I just said yeah. word. <laughs> no, the word. The start, the start. Read what you said, the, 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 the gay attack at the start yeah. was, um, I think it was really the ballsy that they did that that was in the that was in the book okay yeah that's a direct yeah. and i actually had a, a chat with another film critic on the weekend guy davis who you know very well paul and um and he said as well he said there was this aspect of the book and i don't remember the book well enough but he mentioned and it sort of triggered something with me <laughs> another word <laughs> that um was about uh that this idea that dairy there's just something wrong with dairy it's not necessarily about the monster mm. and the monster symptomatic yeah. of it it's more that there is it's like you know there's something rotten in denmark you know mm. that that, that yeah. th- there was and that gay hate that mm. hate crime was part of that so they start it with a with a shock and go nowhere that they has even, nothing yeah. to do with the rest of it apart from saying pennywise is back and yeah it. and it's it's such a such a shame in a lot of ways like there's so much that they could have done with it and the fact that with one of the characters with his trajectory there could have been a way to really explore that in a more meaningful way I don't know I mean like it was one of those things where I I wasn't like a massive fan of the um 
first chapter, but actually watching this film and especially because they flashes <laughs> back to it, I was like, oh, that's a good film in comparison. <laughs> and it's like it definitely falls to the, the fate of the sequel where you're just like, oh, it really makes me appreciate that earlier film. <laughs> and I thought that the child actors in that first film had such great chemistry and all of the jokes they made were actually very believable and even the way they looked like kids, like they, mm. they properly <laughs> looked like kids. They weren't like Hollywood kids or all grown up. They were awkward and weird and had all these like dumb jokes and I was like, that's such a good representation or believable representation of childhood that I don't think that like camaraderie or friendship which is at the core of this film was actually that well replicated in the adult cast like they're all very good performers and I actually thought that the acting was very good in this film the line some of the dialogue was a bit clunky but I don't think it's the fault of the actors um but the I didn't believe that there was like a strong sense of I don't know, it just felt a bit forced. There's a scene in which they all meet for the first time in this restaurant. And I actually didn't like, I thought there were some good comic moments. But a lot of the jokes just was like felt that they felt, I don't know, just didn't feel like a film made in 2019. Like there was a lot of fat jokes throughout the film. And it just seemed like there wasn't a very believable camaraderie. I think part of it is, uh, and again, I've, see, uh, I've been reading the book all year. Mm. I still haven't finished it. So I still yeah. don't know how the book ends. I, I have such a... Because the the book is great um, so far. It's very of its time, like it's very 1986. But part of it is that when they all get together, they all start reverting to their childhood personas. Ah, So it it makes sense that some of those now potentially dated jokes that might have flown in 89 when they were kids would come out mm, because they're all yeah. reverting. But because, did they, it didn't sell it like that yeah, in the film, did it? No, because Bill starts stuttering again, which I he like hasn't in years. And, yeah. you know, and like things like um, Richie, um, the weird thing is in the book, Richie doesn't have glasses anymore when he's an adult. And then when he comes to Derry, he needs, like he mm. starts his eyes, well, he needs his, con- he's got contacts or whatever. Like, yeah, it's like his eye start, sight starts playing up and mm. all their old stuff starts coming back. How familiar are you with the miniseries? Reasonably familiar because I watched it a bit. Um, I was working with someone on a documentary on it, of all things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is um, a completely different beast. I mean, it plays as melodrama. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because I think both of, both the miniseries and this uh, two-part are done in two-part narratives. They both rate 9 out of 20 overall for me. It's like mm. I think this is like the first film. I wasn't crazy about the first film. I thought it was full of, again, I, I'm, I'm tired of cheap jump scares and, and you know. And, I know they're bad. They just scare I know, me. I because, can't Because the sound system. <laughs> the sound system, yeah. It's exactly. like if somebody literally comes up to you and just goes, bah, like, like yeah. of course you're, you're gonna going jump. to It's jump. ridiculous. It, it, it doesn't create suspense. I did like the kids a lot. I like the adults quite a bit, as uh, particularly Bill Hader as Richie yeah. and and um, James Ransone as Eddie and and uh, Jessica Chastain as Beverly. They were my three favourites. But it's like I, if I were to rank them, I'd say that the, the it part one is still the best of the, and then like it the miniseries part one is still the best thing uh, adaptation. It part two of the miniseries is the worst. These two films lay in between, mm-hmm. and I think they're both. I think the first one was kind of average. The second one, for for about an hour, even an hour and fifteen, I thought, oh my god, they might actually crack this. Mm. The there's a there's one scene in particular where Pennywise lures a little girl under the bleachers that I found genuinely creepy. Yeah, I really like that scene in this um, in, this, in film. this one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Also, the great thing about that is that it touches on the way in which like the really vulnerable, like the children are vulnerable to Pennywise, exactly. pre- precisely because 
they're being neglected by their parent or whoever, you know, yeah. the caregiver. In, and even, like, you see that with the older sibling. Yeah. Oh, they play yeah. on bullying, and, and, the bullying aspect and, or the being different. But yeah. and it, that, was another, it was another mouth, though, attacking. It was, but it was the first <laughs> one. Like, second, first. It was early. We didn't, we didn't, it hadn't turned into Tim Burton's It yet, which is precisely what the last act is. Yeah, you're it right. looks like yeah. a freaking Tim Burton it film. It does. That is a really good By the time, Is by the Thomas time, Caldwell listening to us? He's a big fan of Look, uh, I like Tim, Tim Burton. Burton too, but Tim Burton doesn't make tentpole horror movies. I just think, look, I mean, we've talked about this film for a while now. We've got to wrap it up, unfortunately, soon. But I think big budgets are the natural enemy of horror. Mm. I think, like, big budgets just the min- And I think I'm, like, I'm looking at the trailer for Doctor Sleep, the Ewan McGregor starring sequel to The Shining that's coming out later in the year. And I'm thinking of just giving it a pass. Like, I'm done with this. Like, the more bells and whistles you throw at this thing. And in the end, because it does start really well in character. And, and again, like you're saying with the book, the whole point is it has come to Derry. It is ancient. And it has yeah. come to Derry thousands of years ago. And is like basically the, um, is an engine of hate. So it's the thing that drives, or like you were saying, like with the hate crimes, the hate like with crimes, the thing, yeah. with the neglect, with the abuse, it's all coming out of this thing that lives under the town as always. And that's why this, something's always been wrong with Derry. It's because it's been lurking under there for millennia. And the way this film just kind of throws that away, there's a character who's actually quite major in the book, this character of Henry Bowers, who's the, mm. the bully that that oh, yeah. torments the kid. And he seems like really wrong, like like even compared to normal bullies, he's a psychopath. And in this, they reduce him to a comic character. He does nothing. He does yeah. absolutely that nothing. That storyline goes nowhere as well. Flaunts about, like, mm-hmm. it's... And, like, there's a character, like, one of the Losers Club gets stabbed in the face and it's treated as a comic beat. There's so much mm. weirdness in this film. There's one point where a character gets vomited on and Angel of the Morning plays for oh, about 10 seconds and it just terrible? stops. That was such a bad call I on that. I literally going, yeah. I don't know what this it's means. Really odd. And even to see them, they go through a period of extreme horror, like, for example, Beverly's character, mm. and then she's, I don't know, at the hotel just kind of relaxing on the <laughs> stairs, and then there's a horror moment later on the stairs. You go, she would be in a perpetual state of anxiety yeah. because it could happen anywhere. Mm. And then this whole idea of that you just have to commit to to not believing – well, they kind of knew that beforehand, yeah. so why didn't they rally around I, that anyway? And, it just was, yeah, and, it was and, odd. And the conclusion, again, I haven't read the ending of the book. I don't know how the book ends, but but I've seen the series. But it's it seems to end in the most social media way ever. Like <laughs> like like, oh, if we just call something out and yell at it, it'll shrink and go away. Like, um, spoiler Like you know, like <laughs> we can edit that out, right? Sorry, I got excited. It's a really old book, so yeah, you read know. the book. Watch the miniseries. And the miniseries came out Damn, in 1990. So. Just saying. Just drive on by. Let's just drive on by. Let's don't look back. Just drive on by. Um, yeah, I was very disappointed with this film. Um, the Yeah, like I said, great. The first half really sucked me in. Second half, it's just it's just too much. And, and has there ever been a 169-minute horror film? That's... I, do, I think it just is indulgent at some point. Also, yeah. I was going to say, just as a side, why the hell is Bill on that vintage bike for the rest of the film when he needs to get something. It's just like, dude, you obviously have a rental car. Why are you still on? I get it. The reversion. One scene. It's the reversion. <laughs> just like one scene is nostalgia, like continuing to use broken down bike. Well, again, in the book, it's kind of magic. Like it's yeah, not magic, okay. but I mean, the book, the the bike has these prop. Like it gets it, it got him away from it the first oh, time. Okay. It gets him All away. Right. But in the movie, but you're right. In the movie, the movie does not no. communicate any of this. Instead, we're left with you know thirty minutes of Lord of the Rings style farewells. Uh, don't even. <laughs> Before I spoil it again, um, <laughs> it chapter two is now screening at all major cinemas. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. For our second film this evening, we're looking at Angel of Mine. When we meet Lizzie, played by Nomi Rapace, she's taking her medicine and trying to hold it together as a mother, an employee, a wife, a person. And when her husband, Mike, Luke Evans, asks for a separation and joint custody of their son, Thomas, it soon becomes clear that maybe Lizzie is more frayed than it appears. Lizzie and Mike lost their second and youngest child, a girl named Rosie, in a hospital fire at birth. But while Mike has mourned and made peace with this fact, Lizzie is incapable. This is only compounded when, while accompanying her son to another kid's birthday party, Lizzie sees a young girl, who would be the same age as her daughter is now, who seems awfully frighteningly. Lizzie quickly becomes friends with the young girl's mother, Claire, played by Yvonne Strahovski, and her husband, played by Richard Roxburgh. Using their son's friendship as a way to keep insinuating herself into their lives, Lizzie's life starts spinning out of control as her obsession with this little girl, and whether it's hers or not, leads to her neglecting her own son, lying to everyone around her, dropping her meds, and stalking her and her family. In a situation that clearly... Or is it? Flick, did you appreciate this film as the backdoor fourth sequel to the Dragon Tattoo franchise, as I did? <laughs> Literally, Nomi replaced playing Lisbeth. Yeah. <laughs> and she has a scar on her back. I'm tipping that's where the tattoo got yeah. removed. <laughs> um, it was interesting because I heard um, an interview with her where she was saying that she often gets typecast or directors are scared of her. And I was like, oh, I wonder why that is. <laughs> <laughs> curious no she i mean i i really like um numi i think she's she's just got a great face she's kind of got very expressive face and the film makes the most of it with the close-ups of her and i suppose a lot of the emotional core of the film is being communicated through her she's kind of she herself mind a little um it's an interesting film i saw this the other day and i feel like i'm still haven't quite made up my mind i feel like some of the puff really strong in the film i particularly really loved richard roxburgh's character um i find him just a great actor in general and i just like the way in which he's just so natural in this film there's it felt like a real character and i think that each of the um so there's two two couple or two families who are involved in and it was just very believable i um i'm glad that a film about parenthood wasn't just left to the mothers i think that that's a tendency especially with this sort of like child gone missing or you know grieving parents there's a focus on the woman in those mm. sorts of films and i love the fact that they kind of did play into how the fathers are both dealing. In fact, um, one father's trying to go for custody yeah, of the yeah. child as well. So this idea that the mother cannot fulfil her role. Yeah, as yeah, yeah. And I think that that was um, they they were they're kind of complex and layered characters. Mm. It didn't feel. I feel like there was a lot of work put into the script and the characterisation. Luke Davy, right, who did yeah. Candy, um, got that right? No, Luke Davy's definitely. There's another yeah. writer as well whose yes. name escapes da- me. David Regal. Yeah. yeah, and I think that the strength of that is possibly what carries this film. I yeah, I really I really loved Richard Roxburgh's character for that reason. I'm not sure about the the trajectory. I do feel as though it was a little bit one note. I think um, the the performances are strong, but I don't know. It felt a bit of the two same same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's not enough. Um, changes in the characters and I thought that there was a lot of interesting places that it could have gone and then I felt 
at the end that wrapped up quickly. So uh, I don't know. I'm on the fence with this one. I'm really torn because there are so many elements that I enjoyed about it, but then certain scenes that I was like, ugh. And it does go into quite dark places. I was quite quite impressed by the way in which some of the scenes is um the one of um. Sorry, what's her name? Lizzie. Um, she, you know, she's been sort of everyone's a bit worried about her mental state, and so one of the ways to they're sort of pushing her into like, oh, you should date, oh, you. And she she goes on a date, and I feel like that whole sense of performativity comes through in the, the film a lot. So she's a, she works it up works at a makeup ca- makeup hmm. counter. <laughs> I work at words. <laughs> um, and she she's and that sense of like putting on a putting well, the, on a normal face. Very like first shot of quotation. the movie is her taking pills yeah. and then doing up her face. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that is um that's well developed, but I just don't know whether you get a good enough sense of it. I don't know. I'm, I'm, what do you think? Do you know Emma? what when you you're talking about the other characters in this film, what I really liked was that she went on a date with a man who was an Indigenous man and it was made a point that this man, it was just a guy that she went yeah, on a date with. Yeah. And I thought that was really refreshing and yeah, a cool. massive step also, that we could yeah. go, okay, now we just have Indigenous people going on dates with non-Indigenous people and they're just all people. And that's what yeah. we need to see mm. to, and- you know, we need to put forward issues as well, of course, as we talked about last week, Paul, with the, jan- the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. But we're in 2019. This mm. is really nice to see. Colourblind casting. Colourblind yeah. casting. Also, he's, yeah. he's excellent. He has he such. Uh, he doesn't have a particularly big role in the film, but he's so, so good in, in communicating this, like, both sense of confusion and concern. Um, and a missed, a heck, oppor- it's a and heck- a missed opportunity because <laughs> yeah. he was so emotionally mature and so hot, and she was like, I know. Yeah. "It's a heck of a scene." It was a really, yeah. like, it was yeah. a really yes. distressing scene. Actually, yeah. I found it distressing. Oh, absolutely! And yeah. as a way, I think that for me was the strongest display of her mental state. But I just wish that they'd maybe be followed a bit more because that scene is so powerful. But it kind of st- seems to stand alone. Mm. Yeah, I think that they weren't going to go on another date. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I think it has to stand alone. <laughs> but Not um, another date. I mean, another <laughs> stage to development. <laughs> it felt like a throwback '90s thriller to me. Uh, I did, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I quite like that feel of that '90s stalker kind of thriller, um, which you know. It goes to a place of maybe surprise, maybe not. Uh, so it didn't feel like anything remarkable, but it felt, you know, sufficiently entertaining uh, on a number of levels because also I think that you can't help but see a film made in Melbourne and start picking out mm-hmm. things. Particularly which... one around your neck of the woods, Emma. <laughs> yes, yes, a lot around my neck of the woods. And Como Centre was part <laughs> where they actually met and chatted, you know, had a confrontation oh. about keep away from my daughter or when she revealed that she thought That's her the daughter. That was Como, yeah. Was, were Eddie Gardens in there as well or was I mistaken? I thought there was one bit when she was driving. Yeah, park. yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, there's a few. Um, I thought that uh, maybe it was Alma Gardens, one part, yeah. and oh, then okay. there's a but, lot of St Kilda and Elwood. Yeah, and and I see. I do live close to Alma Gardens, so I see a lot of filming that goes on there. It seems to be a favourite place, although it doesn't have a lake. And then they were in the yes. the lake, so that was probably somewhere else. But that's another thing: seeing Melbourne put together as a patchwork, and seeing just the the 
the townscape. I mean, you know, it's just maybe a silly thing to talk about, but you, you do actually see the light, your, the look of your city, which is a different look mm. to anything else. Mm. It even looks different to Sydney when you yeah, see Sydney, absolutely. Sydney in film. So that's a thrill on a different level. But yeah, very much. I th- I found this to be a perfectly entertaining film to watch but nothing that was saying anything particularly profound or pushing into new territory. I feel like a Frankenstein of your two reviews because, yeah, I liked... I like that this was. I like that this did go in a sort of trashy thriller territory. Actually, coming out of this, I felt like this was the Greta. This is a Greta that I like. <laughs> it's like yeah, I get it's it. Like, yeah. what, what if Greta but good? Yeah. Um, and but not as good as Kindergarten Teacher, <laughs> which I haven't seen. Oh, I haven't check seen it out. Um, but I, I think that's the thing. I think it's a, it's a trashy '90s style thriller with excellent performances and above average characterization, and that's the thing. It's like there's a line. Um, there's there's a line in the film where Numi rapaces kind of going up, and at one point she says, "I used to be before all this. I used to be funny. I used to be funny, and that really hit me. Mm. Like I actually found myself tearing up at it. Yeah, that and was a really strong line. You're right. Yeah, her loss of personality, not recognizing mm. herself. Mm. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff like that in here. Um, it's interesting because when the film does turn, like there is a there is a a, res- a thing of the resolution, and it's interesting. Half the audience that was in my theater went with it, and half of it really didn't. <laughs> they oh, were, really? Yeah, mm. I I actually dug it. I actually thought, you know what, I, that's worked out the right way. Um, I yeah, I really enjoyed. I I, I got to say, um, like you, flick, I'm a little torn in how much I liked it, mm. but I did enjoy this. Uh, I, I thought it was and I think that's the thing. I think the performances um, the direction of actors um, and the characterization at script level I think help it um, quite a bit and, and underpin it. I think a lot of people still don't realise that Yvonne Strofsky's an uh, Australian act- actress. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. Be totally on it. Because she was One Dexter. of my favourite names to say, Yvonne Strofsky. Strofsky. <laughs> she was um, uh, in Dexter as well before Ham- uh, Handmaid's she, she was Tale. She in that show Chuck. Chuck. As well, there was like a show about a kind of guy who becomes a secret agent, and she's the agent yeah. handler or something. There's something yeah. about seeing them then slip into their Australian tongue. It's really interesting because she does, you know, speak proper Australian. Yeah. Let's say <laughs> perfect, perfect Australian accent by the Australian. It's uh, amazing how difficult that is to pull off. Um, but no, I, I, no, I thought this was, I thought this was really solid. Um, Angel of Mine is currently screening at all good independent cinemas. Oceanfront High is not your typical high school, but maybe as the 1960s give way to the 70s, more indicative than one might suspect. It's a place where the sexual revolution and flower power ideals of free thought and free love are in full bloom, and taking advantage of this situation is Oceanfront's assistant principal, guidance counsellor and head football coach, Mike Tiger McDrew. Played by a mustachioed Rock Rock Hudson, whose closed testing sessions prove ample opportunities to cop off with the entire female student body. Wandering through all this is the amusingly named student Ponce de Leon Harper, John David Carson. (laughs) Everyone's going to want to see this film just from the character names. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Whose sexual frustration is hitting him like an atom bomb, what with all this free love around him and no action whatsoever to show for it. But when Ponce finds a girl's dead body in the boys' bathroom and reports it, he finds every 
everyone from Principal Proffer, played by Roddy McDowell, to Tiger McDrew and, well, the entire staff and student body, really, more preoccupied with, by how this will affect the weekend's big game rather than the potential threat of a serial killer stalking women on campus. As super cool police captain Sam Searcher, played by Telly Savalas, trading a chup-chup for shades, investigates, and Tiger recruits unwitting young substitute teacher Betty, Angie Dickinson, to help relieve Ponce's sexual anxieties, the secrets hidden by some of Ocean Front's most prominent citizen being buried in an increasing pile of bodies. <laughs> Emma, what led you to this as your retro pick for the week? I decided to do something I felt was a little out of the box, uh, you know, mix it up a little bit. Yeah. And um, Pretty Maids All in a Row is probably a film that not many people know a lot about and has been really hard to get. Is still relatively hard to get, but um, it is available on iTunes through rental and to purchase. Um, a little limiting depending on um, whether you're a Mac or <laughs> Android person. But uh, this is probably one of the bizarre Hollywood films that, you know, I've come across. It's uh, Star Trek uh, overlord Gene Roddenberry's only film screenwriting credit. Yeah. And he produced it as well. And produced it. It's adapted Mm -hmm. from a novel. By an Italian writer, I think. I think the novel's just as hard, if harder to get than the film. Wow. And it's directed by French director and Lothario, uh, <laughs> Roger Vadim. Who Lover gave us, of beautiful women. Who gave us Barbarella and, and God Created Woman, among yes. other things. Yes, uh, and was romantically linked with both Bridget Bardot and um, Jane, Jane Fonda. Fonda. So this was his actual first American f- film, so he'd only in Europe. And he was a very European director as well and a director of his time. So this film will never, ever, ever be made now. Uh, <laughs> The opening that we just heard, the we heard the track Chilly Winds by the Osmonds gives you an idea of the tone of the opening credit sequence. It's very unusual. This film's p- pitched as a comedy, I guess, in what you could argue in today's parlance, the kind of American Pie style sort of teen comedy, although it's made in 1971. But I, I don't really see it as a comedy. In fact, watching it again before we did this show, I realised this. My, my revelation was this film is actually the script of a por- porn film <laughs> <laughs> without the porn. Yeah. But it is the script of a porn film. The the um, There is pati- one moment where Angie Dickinson... Uh, sees Ponce's erection and says... <laughs> that he's always oh, trying to it's hide. It's terrific. <laughs> you know, she's, it's, it's, this is, you know, stuff that you... Is in a porn film. But um, you don't see his erection. You don't see any explicit lovemaking in this. You do see some female nudity. But it's all very arty in some ways and even the the women the setup of it this is like a male gaze a middle-aged male gaze fantasy I mean the fact that everyone wants to shag Rock Hudson Rock isn't looking his best here Rock is looking the day after Rock you know he's (laughs) kind of had a hard these life's catching up to him in this yet still every nubile young lady and this school is full of them and Mm. they're all very uh, sexually advanced and confident. It's not what t- teenage girls are like or teenagers are like, yet this film is full of them. <laughs> yeah. It's really bizarre, but highly entertaining <laughs> and intriguing at the same time. And it's, you know, like it, it's also kind of a, a satire, I think, on commenting on the fact that, you know, there were a lot of men 
who took advantage of the sexual revolution for their own yes. ends. And, you know, oh, women are giving away free love. Well, great. I'm going to put myself in the position to get as much of that as possible. And particularly older men who are, who are taking advantage of this. And kill them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's just kind of, I think on that level, it's also kind of interesting. I mean, and the way Angie Dickinson's character manoeuvres through this film is hilarious. Like, <laughs> it's very strange. It's like, really bizarre. Like, and this is, not, this is not like a little... Uh, flaky cast. This is quite a uh, full you know, of superstars. Yeah, and it also has Scotty in it, James Stewart. Mm. So you know, a bit of Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek crew. Layla Schifrin does the music as well. Yeah. You can remember it's just full of might from that time. Yeah, and it's such an odd project. This is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite films. Mm, he, I, I but, saw that. Voted as one of his top 12 in the uh, sound, Sight and Sound poll from uh, uh, 2012. So I'd love to hear his thoughts on it. It's, a, it's, it's, definitely, a, um, it's definitely a curio. Um, it's, um, it's very, like you said, it's very entertaining. Um, this is your, you've had it sitting there waiting to watch it, Paul, I, and this is your first watch. So yes, what was that I've experience? Bought it on iTunes after reading the Tarantino thing. Um, yeah, it's... It's sort of answer. You're kind of like that was very entertaining, a little random, and I don't know exactly what the point is. But then I was sort of digging into it. There is a lot of that, you know, sexual revolution taking advantage, and it's interesting because Gene Roddenberry was always an incredibly progressive writer. Yeah, like Star Trek was the most progressive show on the air. It's all around ethics and, and so morality. That's, and that's what I mean. I think that there's something. That's why I can't help but look at this film as a satire on mm. on that sort of take, and and also just. On, on that sort of, yeah, men who take advantage of, of sexually liberated women. And, you know, and but the whole Ponce subplot, like, yeah, he's basically a Jason Biggs character. Yeah. Um, and Angie Dickinson walking up, shoving her boobs in his face. It's very, it's, look, it's, it's very much a, it's a fun time capsule in a way. I, I, I just, yeah, I don't know. I still don't <laughs> entirely know what to make of it. Like, I've, it's very I've, straightforward as a plot, but it's sort of like, what does this mean? Like, what is going on here? It it, it, it totally shifts all the time. That's a, the – but somehow hangs together as a whole. Um, there's there's an intriguing line as well that comes out, probably the more um, progressive line in the film because um, Roddy McDowell's headmaster character keeps on lamenting that this about this girl's death by saying she was a terrific little cheerleader. And uh, Ponce says, I think the line actually goes, says, uh, don't you think she'd want to be recognised for more? Yes. And that sort of comes out yeah. from nowhere. Right? And this community are quite misogynistic in a way too, and that's a goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, fascinating film. We could chat heaps more about it. But and it's got Rock Hudson in a caftan, I mean, really. With a moustache. Don't forget the moustache. <laughs> and doing handstands. <laughs> Pretty Maids All in a Row is currently available to rent or buy from iTunes. You're listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R with Emma Westwood and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discussed It, Chapter 2, now screening at all major cinemas, Angel of Mine, now screening at all good independent cinemas, and Pretty Maids All in a Row, available to rent and buy via iTunes and Apple Movies. Uh, you can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand, or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page, right now. You can also subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes, oh, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, our intrepid cavers will send off Lulu Wang's new film, The Farewell. Check out Sophie Hyde's Animal. Animals. (laughs) And a retro... Flick's first retro pick, which... uh, Flick's pick. Flick's pick, which is yet to be decided. We'll find out next week. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast and and to Carl Chapman for panelling the show this week and to Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. Thanks for listening to Triple R's Plato's Cave, a weekly radio show of informed, passionate and fun film criticism. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch with us via the Plato's Cave Facebook page, Twitter or via the Triple R website. 